A reading from the Gospel of John, verse four, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks so much for that. Um, appreciate that word. Uh, I will also pray just for our time uh, before we jump into the passage this morning. So would you pray with me? Uh, Lord God, I do ask that uh, we would uh, see you clearly in this passage, that we would um, be able even to tap in uh, to, to that, that feeling, that reality of uh, our, our need, our, our distress and our neediness, um, wherever, wherever we might uh, be feeling that this morning, um, but all the more that we would experience and know the presence and love of Jesus uh, and the future hope of being with him, and that we would look forward to that day together. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I really do love this time of the year. Every year in August and September, uh, all kinds of new folks move into Cambridge. Uh, the traffic gets a little bit worse. Uh, you see people who are riding bikes for the first time who don't know how to ride bikes in the city. Uh, there's just there's a lot of life and excitement both in the city and in our church. Uh, we have all kinds of uh, new people who are here uh, for for school, for postdoc programs, for new jobs who are who are uh, filing into the church, and it breathes new life into our congregation and and I think some real energy into what we're doing here. Um, and it's fun to see new people serving alongside the vision and the mission of the church. And there really is a lot of excitement. I feel like that gets uh, a fair amount of attention, this new energy of, of, of a fall semester, of, of, the, of the August and September here in Cambridge. Um, but I think another sort of reality of a time like this is that it means for many of you, you are newly here, which means you are away from wherever home has been for you. And the city can be overwhelming. And as you start a new program or a new job, everything in life can feel like it's in transition, like it's unstable, like you don't really have your place yet. You're, you're navigating some of the mundane things of life. You're trying to fit couches into narrow doorways and down narrow hallways. You're trying to understand if there's any rhyme or reason to how the T operates and if you can get to where you're going on time, like, ever. Um, you are trying to find uh, your office building or your classroom and just sort of make your place uh, here in Cambridge. Um, and maybe you're part of a church back home, and, and, and this one doesn't feel quite like the one that you are used to. 
And so it's, it's very likely that this morning, uh, many of you are here feeling like you're trying to find your place. Like you're, you're trying to make sense of this new world that you've entered into. And I don't think that you have to be new to Cambridge necessarily to feel this struggle of finding your place. Cambridge is always in transition. We move within the city from year to year. Um, our community that we find one year oftentimes gets scattered around the world the next. And so this morning, maybe you're not new, but your heart is aching for a place that's familiar. You're, you're aching for another people, people who get you, who put you at ease. Or maybe you don't have a place that you're longing for at all, that you're like most adults in the 21st century uh, who move from school to school and job to job and struggle to ever be rooted anywhere. It's likely that many of us are bringing in this rootlessness into worship this morning. And of course, the concept of, of home, of belonging, has become more, a more prominent theme in our lives over these last two years. The physical space that we've occupied has become our entire world at times. And our place of home, of course, is a physical space, but it's also relational. And, and if we're honest about it, this side of heaven, many things about our concept of home and belonging are broken. And what I love about this passage is that the gospel deconstructs and reconstructs our categories of home and destination of belonging. That Jesus speaks to his disciples about belonging to a people and a place in the face of their missed expectations and disappointments. And that's the hope of the gospel for God's people, that those who had no place, those people who struggled to find a home are given a home, are given a people, have a seat around the table that is theirs, that they are missed when they're not there. It's, it's what Jesus is calling you into, that we are bound to one another because, the in, because of the incarnation, we belong to Jesus. And because we belong to Jesus, we belong to one another. Because you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, the words of Isaiah 32 are about you. Isaiah 32, 18 says, My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, in a quiet resting place. And in John 14, Jesus begins to make that reality more known. The world has quickly become a place that feels chaotic and unstable. And it's always been that. We, we know that, that if we read history or we even understand the last 50 years, that it's always been a reality, but we feel it acutely today. You can't deny that we feel it deeply. And I'm not just talking about the last 18 months of COVID and a pandemic. We have natural disasters that seem to be creeping up in more and more frequency. We have wars and persecution and racial injustice happening in the world around us. And if you're in Christ, I think that ought to make us look at a passage like this and long all the more for Jesus to be with him in eternity. The theologian Fleming Rutledge uh, says the entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent. Between the first and second coming of the Lord, in the tension between the way things are 
and the way things ought to be. And I think it's an invitation to first be realistic about the way things are right now, today, your experience in the world, but also to look forward with a true hopeful expectation for the way things will be. And John 14 is a presentation of both our present hope and our future reality. And we're living in the middle of that tension. Greg did a a great job of giving a little bit of context for John 14. Uh, I want to give you just a bit more to to kind of place us in this passage. Uh, So we know from Mark 20, or sorry, Matthew 20 and Mark 10, that Jesus has predicted his death, his, his, uh, his crucifixion and resurrection to his disciples. Uh, in, in John 14, Jesus has just traveled to Jerusalem. Uh, the other gospels have a, a, a record of the triumphal entry uh, that you may uh, be familiar, uh, familiar with around Easter time. Um, So he has entered into the city of Jerusalem with a fair amount of fanfare, and uh, it is days before Passover. And now here, starting in chapter 13, they're celebrating the Passover feast. And Jesus is in Jerusalem in this upper room. You may have heard of the upper room discourse. That's this section with Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover. And Jesus is at the dining room table. He is teaching them. And in the middle of chapter 13, if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that Jesus is troubled and he tells the disciples that one of them will betray him. And he calls out Judas as the man and Judas leaves the dinner and goes on to continue his plot against Jesus. And so here we arrive at John 14, 1, Jesus with his disciples in the room giving them hope in face of real disappointment, in real instability. And the disciples are in a confusing place. They've given up everything to follow this man. They have traveled with him. They've given up their careers. And they know that he will die, but they don't know what their future is. Um, If you're a note taker, I'll, I'll have sort of two points to outline this morning. I want to look first at how we, like the disciples, are troubled people, and then move into seeing how Jesus, in our trouble and distress, moves towards us. And so first, we, like the disciples, are troubled people. And so I'll pick up at verse 1 of chapter 14, uh, where the heart of the disciples are just filled with this medley of emotions. They are sad because of the gloomy prospect of Christ's departure. They are ashamed uh, because of their own selfishness and pride. They are perplexed because of the prediction that one of them would betray Jesus. They're wavering in their faith. And all of this is implied in these words of comfort from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled any longer. And they're filled with this angst and self-doubt, and they wonder what is true and what they really should believe. And I love how Thomas sort of speaks up for everyone when he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How could we even know the way? And what I think is fascinating about verse 1 is that we know that it's Jesus' heart that is troubled. In John 12 and later in chapter 13, 
uh, it says that Jesus' heart is heavy in spirit, that he is looking forward to the cross with, with a, a sense of anxiety, with a, with a weight and a heaviness on him. He is the one who is to suffer, to be betrayed, but it is Jesus' mind that is on his people, that he gives and he comforts and he instructs and he moves towards his disciples in their distress. And he gives each of us good reason to be comforted in our distress. Look at the second half of verse 1. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. On the, the surface reading, I wasn't sure exactly what that meant, and I kind of looked into some of the translations. The most common and obvious translation, Jesus is asking this rhetorical question, do you believe in God? With, with the sort of obvious assumed answer, yes. Well, then you should also believe in me. And, and this, this, this understanding is reaffirmed in verse 7 when Jesus says, from now on, you know God, and you've seen him you're looking at his face right now. And, and so the disciples are to be comforted because they know and see and are looking at the face of God. And so in the face of their shame and doubt and uncertainty and inability, they know the one in whom they trust, who holds the world in their hands. And so maybe, like me, you find yourself losing sight of that reality too often. I think it can be easy to live like the disciples in troubled despair. Despair presents itself in all kinds of different ways. I think one way we see it uh, is that it presents itself by us filling the void with other things so we don't feel our despair. In, in places like Cambridge and Boston, uh, we fill we fill our void with success and achievement. We move from one place to the next, one opportunity to the next, climbing the ladder to chase success simply because it's available to us. I think one of the great blessings the Lord gives the church are elders and deacons and pastors and mentors who speak into the wandering of our rootlessness and root us in what really matters. I think it's why it's essential that we have weekday Bible studies and prayer meetings and community groups, because we have to speak the gospel to one another on a regular basis. I would argue that you need the church more than you need anything else this fall. As a point of application, I would encourage you to get to know one of your elders or deacons or leaders of the church and let them actually know you. Let them into the places where your heart is troubled so that they can remind you of the gospel. God uses wise people to lead us out of our wandering and, and leads us out of our troubled hearts into the hope of the gospel. Greg, who is up here giving the word for the kids, is one of the elders of the church. Get to know him. Let him know who you are. There are others here this morning. I think beyond our, our despair leading us uh, into this sort of filling of the void, it, it, leads us, um, it leads us into wandering. And I think we can identify the, with the disciples. We walk around with heavy hearts, and the world feels like a daunting place, and we wonder if we really have what it takes to matter to the world. In our despair, we wonder, are we really people that Jesus sees and cares for and provides for? 
Are we people that can find a spouse, that can stand out to an employer, that can really follow Jesus in a way that is faithful? And the invitation of Jesus in in this passage to your despair is comfort and embrace. That if you are in Christ, you belong to him. You matter to him. He sees you. That you have a place. And I, I think that this is the motivation that helps move us through the Christian life. That your aim in life is eternity with Jesus. It is not rooted in your performance for him, but it is motivated entirely out of love of him. It is the, it is the engine that moves forward the Christian through life. It's how we move from troubled lives to lives of hope that we love Jesus and we move towards him, that, that we actually see the way that we are loved and we move out of our despair into hope. Um, a few weeks ago, um, my family and I rented the, the movie The Little Giants for our Friday night pizza and movie night. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you should. It's a, it's a 90s, I'll call it a classic, I guess. Um, a 90s movie um, about a small town in Illinois uh, and there's this one now grown up who is the star football player of that town. He's gone on to win a Heisman. You see him every day down at the diner retelling his stories of the good old days. And he has the good football team in this town. And, and partway through the movie, uh, you, you see these other uh, kids who really want to play football, but they can't make it onto the good football team. And so they, they form the team, the Little Giants. And there's this sort of B-track storyline that, that really caught my attention through this movie. There's one player who is the smallest player, the least athletic player, who's on the Little Giants named Johnny. And Johnny goes to football practice, he's going to games, uh, and every time he's leaving to go to something, you see the sort of montage of his dad packing his bags for a business trip and is missing whatever it is uh, that, that Johnny is going off to do. And, uh, and just before the big game, they have a pep rally at the coach's house, and, uh, and everyone is leaving with their parents, they're all excited, and Johnny is the last one to leave the house. And the coach you know, sort of asks him, well, where are you going tonight? How are things? And he says, well, you know, my dad's traveling again. He's gone, I wish I could see him. And the next day, the Little Giants are playing the best football team in the league, and they're getting destroyed, right? And halftime comes, and it's the second half, and, and the Little Giants decide that they're going to run a play, and they're going to hand the ball to Johnny. And when they hand it to him, it's sort of this slow motion time, sort of elongates, and they hand off the ball to Johnny, and everyone on the team sees that his dad has his suitcases at the end of the end zone, and he's returned from a business trip. And what, they, what, the, what his teammates yell to Johnny is, go to him. Your dad is here, go to him. And, and Johnny sort of just forgets the rest of the world. And he is breaking tackles, and he is spinning around defenders, and he is sprinting to the end zone, through the end zone, into the arms of his father. And he makes it to the end, not because he's a good football player. In fact, he is the least capable one on the team. 
but he sees his father and he is so he is so enraptured with the love of who he's pursuing that he actually advances through the game that his hope his perseverance his progress through all types of challenges is motivated entirely out of his love for his father and so how do, we, how do you address, how do you move through the troubles and distress of life? How do you address the wanderings and desires that you have for a home? I think you run with all of your might towards the present, warm, inviting embrace of Jesus. It is the invitation of the gospel. That, that we aren't motivated by our own gain, our, our, own, our own advancement. We are motivated by the belonging and connection that Jesus gives us. And it is how we move out of our trouble into the hope of the gospel. That we see him as beautiful and as something to move towards. At the same time in this passage, I believe that we see that Jesus moves towards us in our troubles and distress. That there is a type of, of call sort of out of our anxiety, out of our despair like the disciples have, but Jesus is also moving towards his people. I think the incarnation is an invitation to future hope out of our troubles. Nothing shapes your present more than the future hopes that you set your heart on. Uh, the, the top schools that are surrounding this church are future-oriented institutions. They urge students to put their hopes in future jobs, in future success, in future world-changing. Uh, you will rarely find a student who shows up to one of the universities surrounding this church who does so because college is the best four years of their life. Everyone has a goal and aspiration for something in the future. I believe it's also why these institutions largely, while successful, create students who long for contentment but can rarely find it. Because whatever it is we're searching for is still out there somewhere. And rather than giving us a to-do list, Jesus sees our need, our wandering, our wanting, and he moves towards his people. Because we are on our own incapable of finding present contentment unless Jesus moves towards us. And his moving towards us is his preparing a place for us to bring us home. Look at verse 3 in John 14. Jesus says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And Jesus spells out the reason why he is leaving. It's for our advantage that he would go to prepare a place. Uh, there is some debate among scholars about the place exactly to which Jesus is referring. Um, we know that the text makes plain a few things, uh, that he plans to take his people to a home, and a home with sufficient room, and a, a home with sufficient room where they will be provided for fully. And he says he is going to prepare a place, and the implication is that the cross and the resurrection is part of that preparation that God is making for where his people will go. If Jesus 
will go to such trouble to prepare a place for you. It is inconceivable that verse 3 should not follow from that. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. The love of Jesus is so wonderful that he is not satisfied with the idea of merely bringing you to heaven. This preparation where Jesus is taking you is to his own embrace. That the hope of the Christian is that you will be with Jesus. See, all of the Old Testament is an anticipation and a longing for a Savior that will restore all that is broken. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is meant to point your eyes upward to the place where Jesus is taking you. And so this passage, this morning, you should be looking back at the cross so you can look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Your joy, your peace, your security, your belonging is already safe and stored up for you in the person of Jesus. And that's got to let you live with freedom in the Christian life. You're not going to screw it up. It means that you can rest and lay down your anxiety. It means that you can put your work and your relationships, and your stress, and your longings in their proper place. The burdens that you carry in today matter immensely. They're valid. We want to hear them. You want to bring them to the church and talk about them. They shouldn't be downplayed. At the same time, what ultimately matters is already being prepared for you in heaven today. It's the beauty of the incarnation. It's the aim of the cross. It's the hope that you carry with you in the Christian life. I love that after all of this, we have verse 5. Thomas is this loyal, courageous disciple who's just filled with questions. And he wants an unambiguous destination so he can have a route. I don't know if you've ever tried to pick someone up from a, a busy venue like a mall or a football game or something like that. Um, it's a frustrating experience, right? You're, you're calling someone who's at, say, like a football arena that has a dozen different exits. Like, where are you? I'm at the exit. Which exit? Across from the parking lot. Which parking lot? Just send me a drop pin of your location. Like, just, just like, hold your finger down, share your location, and I'll go exactly to you. And, and Thomas is hearing Jesus speak, and, and he's sort of uh, narrowly focusing in on, uh, on this, uh, this, these words of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, just give me the map. Just give me the directions. Just drop in your location so I know how to find you. And Jesus, being mysterious as always, says, well, I am the journey and the destination. You know the way when you know me. When you see and savor and behold my beauty, you know the truth. And I think the words of Jesus can be hard to understand because it always sounds like Jesus is equivocating. He's not quite giving us the answer. But, but really, he's wanting us to slow down and see that the destination is not a place like what we have in mind. I appreciate this, this meditation that Thomas Akempis gives on these verses because it, it, it looks at the words of Jesus more as the journey rather than the destination. On the, this I am 
uh, statement of Jesus, Thomas Akempis, reflecting on it, writes these words. He says, follow now me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there's no knowing. Without the life, there's no living. I am the way that you must follow. I'm the truth that you must believe. The life that you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I'm the straightest way, the sovereign truth, the life, the life truth, the life blessed, the life uncreated. The gospel is a story of the God who is, who is to be pursued and known, who at the same time pursues his people, who lays down everything to find lost people. And all you have to do is feel your lostness. In John 14, we're reminded that he doesn't just find us, he brings us home and gives us a seat at his table. Uh, Over the summer, you may have seen uh, a story that was on sort of the news cycle for about a week um, about a man from the the Sandan province of China uh, who found his son who'd been lost for 24 years. Um, in 1997, uh, a two-year-old boy was uh, playing outside of his home uh, in his yard in the Sandan province of China, uh, and he was abducted by traffickers. And uh, the, the, the county and the state police kind of put all of their resources into try, in trying to find this boy. Uh, and they spent you know, as much time and resources and energy as they could, and just nothing ever came up. Uh, And the news story made headlines because uh, the father never stopped looking for his son. He quit his job, and every single day for 24 years, his dad handed out flyers. He drove over 300,000 miles. He went through 10 different moped bikes. He spent every penny of their family's money to find his son. And this summer, someone got a tip, and he got, someone gave him a tip, and he got on his bike, and he drove across the country, and he found his 26-year-old son, and he brought him home. And he said that once he was found, after 24 years of unimaginable suffering and pain and difficulty, the first night that they were together, they just did ordinary things. He made him a meal, and he set him down at his seat, at his family table that had never been occupied because it was his. And and his dad walked him to his room, and his son changed his clothes, and he put him down in his bed. And he, he laid him down to sleep because he always had a place for him. And he was finally home the story of God's people, the story of of you, of of you as an individual, is that you are headed somewhere that Jesus is preparing a place for you. I don't want you to hear that as abstract or theoretical, that history has a trajectory, that your life is headed somewhere, that you're headed to a place with these people and all of the people who have called on the name of Jesus throughout all of time in history. 
that you're headed to be with Jesus himself, that he, will, he is coming back to return you to himself. And I think that's how our future hopes shape our present reality. If you've come in this morning feeling the ache of your homelessness, remember the gospel. Look up and remember the God who loves you, the God who today is preparing a place for you. I believe that we're called to be a church that lives every day with this reality in front of us. The invitation of the gospel for us is that Jesus is your destination. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That the church are your people, that we are journeying that way together. And that, to, and that together one day we will be at home with our God. That is your reality this morning. And it's an, it's an invitation to the gospel. Let me pray. Uh, Father, it can be hard <laughs> to live uh, each day uh, with the reality uh, that you are preparing a place for us and that one day that we'll be home. It's easy for us to look around and believe that that's all there is, that our present view uh, is the totality of our reality. Um, but Lord, would you give us a future hope that shapes our present? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.